0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. You know, we live in a divided America. I mean, it's the only way can describe it today. I mean, if you had any doubt, just look at what's happened in uh, uh, Congress over the House Speaker issue um, Or look at the pro-Palestinian protests on college campuses and in cities over the war in Israel. And, in fact, a community board in California passing a resolution blaming Israel for the conflict. Also, there's a former president. He's facing four indictments, and he will say that this is all a political witch hunt. Or how about the fight in local school boards over a parent's right to know if their child has gender dysphoria? Um, Just go back to 2020 and the Black Lives Matter riots that caused millions of dollars in damage to communities across America. Um, You know, the divide is local and it's also global. You know, America is unique. It's exceptional. Really, I mean, I think it is um, as the experiment of a republic, a fragile one at that because we fought two wars to keep it. But can we still America's freedom of religion as a foundational part of our Constitution has given it a liberty that is strong, but that liberty has, was based on a belief in a Judeo-Christian backdrop. And it is that foundation that is being challenged today and is at the heart of the divisions. In fact, my guest today says America is as deeply divided um, as to, today as at any time since just before the Civil War. And the question is why? Oz Guinness has some answers. He's the author and editor of uh, more than 35 books, uh, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and a senior fellow at the East West Institute. He's also an advocate for religious freedom. And one of his latest books uh, takes head on this issue of the causes of a divided America. And it's called The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. And he joins me now. Welcome, Mr. Guinness.
1: Well, thank you, Lauren. Great privilege to be
0: with you again. Um, You wrote this book uh, really soon after the tumult of 2020 and the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter um, riots or or protests after the George Floyd murder. Um,
1: What was on your mind then? Well, you could pick any moment in the last 10 years. Clearly, the key term in Washington polarization, the deep division. The question is, why? Some blame the social media, some blame the former president, some say it's the coastals, California, Oregon, New York against the Heartlanders. Some say it's the populists over against the globalists. But I would argue the deepest division is between those who understand America, the Republic and freedom, from the perspective of the American Revolution, And those who understand it from the perspective of the heirs of the French Revolution. Because ideas like postmodernism, radical multiculturalism, the sexual revolution, the cancel culture, critical race theory, all that stuff, all of those come down from the French Revolution, not the American Revolution. And so you've got a deep division about what the country stands for and is today, and it must be resolved. You think of Just before the Civil War, Lincoln says, quoting Jesus, a house divided cannot stand. You can't be half slave, half free. And what I'm arguing, in effect, is America cannot be half 1776 and half 1789. The two revolutions go in different directions.
0: How did we, as a country, take on the French Revolution as a good thing? How did that happen? Is it, or Do we blame sort of indoctrination in college campuses um, or is there sort of almost a sin-based foundation
1: to wanting the, the, well, the issues right, you,
0: of the French Revolution?
1: You have a thoughtful audience. We're not talking about France. The revolution only lasted 10 years in France and then came Napoleon. But like a huge volcanic explosion, the lava flows have flowed out ever since. The first one, we don't need to bother about, revolutionary nationalism. The second one, revolutionary socialism, or in one word, communism, designed in the 19th century, burst out in the 20th in the Russian Revolution, Chinese Revolution. That's not actually what we're facing here. We're facing the third lava flow, what's called not classical Marxism, but cultural Marxism. Mm. And that goes back to the 1920s, and a gentleman called Antonio Gramsci sat in jail under Mussolini. His ideas were picked up by the Frankfurt School, and importantly, the leader of the Frankfurt School in the 60s was Herbert Marcuse. Mm. And he was a German radical in 1968, that year in which Martin Luther King was assassinated, Senator Kennedy assassinated, and there was a hundred American, far worse than 2020, a hundred American cities ablaze. But the radicals knew they wouldn't win in the streets. So they called for a long march through the institutions, win the colleges and universities, win the press and the media. Win culture industry hollywood and entertainment and then sweep around and win the whole culture now that's 50 years ago Good. but you can see how extraordinarily they've done it this is amazing now, like, you
0: you sorry. You, you, you you talk about it in the book that there are basically five revolutions in the modern era five revolutions the english revolution um of uh 1642 i believe and then mm-hmm. you've got the American Revolution of 1776, the French Revolution of uh, 1789, um, and uh, the Russian Revolution of seven, 1917, the Chinese Revolution in, in 1949. Now, that's the one you actually witnessed as a young boy. What did that do to you? How did that make you under either fear or understand revolutions?
1: Well, I was... Uh seven-year-old when my dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has abandoned the city. We were living in the capital Nanjing and we're at the mercy of the Red Army. And in they came. And I was there for the first two years of the reign of terror. And I left in 1951. My parents were kept another two years after that under house arrest. But it gave me an incredibly realistic view of human nature, of war, and certainly a revolution. Later, seeing what happened in Eastern Europe under the Soviets. So I would join those who say bluntly, the revolutions of the left never succeed, and their oppressions never end, and the futures that they promise never arrive. And so I've been brought up with an immense realism about it, and that's why I keep warning Americans today who are remarkably naive or many ways catching up rather late. You know, we live in Virginia. Thank goodness our wonderful governor was partly helped into office through the Loudoun County controversies of critical race theory. But many people had never heard of that before those controversies. And yet they go all the way back to the 1920s and so on. So we should have been forewarned. For example, in the writings of the sexual revolution, you can read Wilhelm Reich, who gave us the term sexual revolution. He says, we have two enemies, the church and parents. Mm. In terms of parents, you want sex education at three and four to sideline parents. And that, of course, is what Glenn Youngkin tackled so courageously and won. But many conservatives and even many Christians didn't realize that this had been forecast years ago. We should have been forewarned. You don't think that these kinds of voices,
0: which seem very radical and um, off mainstream, people don't pay close attention to them because they are sort of out of the mainstream. But they really had weight. They had an audience that took hold of these things. Um, Your book talks about three things, and I think that's interesting because it talks about American—the American crisis is a crisis of freedom. Why do you say it's a crisis of freedom?
1: Well, I follow St. Augustine's simple but I think profound idea. If you understand a nation, you don't look at the size of its population or the numbers it has in its army or whatever. You look at what a nation loves supremely, what's at the core of the nation. And— As an admirer of this country, I think there's no question most Americans would agree what Americans love supremely is freedom. And the American way of freedom coming out of the Hebrew roots in Exodus is a distinctive freedom. And yet it's been deeply challenged today. So there are a lot of specious views of freedom and a lot of dangerous and false views of freedom. But freedom is the issue. But it's easy to say And we got to say what we mean and then understand how it's gone wrong. That is one of the things
0: that um, was always challenging to me when you read deep thinkers like you, um, that something like freedom is incredibly complex. It is not the freedom that we understand to do anything that we want to do at whatever time. It is the freedom to do right. To, to be moral. Um, and that's really kind of part of the complexity of freedom. But you, you tell me your take more on this idea of a complex freedom.
1: No, you're exactly right. I mean, Lord Acton, who's the greatest philosopher and historian of freedom, he says basically, freedom is not the permission to do what you like. That's anarchy. It is the power to do what you ought. Well, to put it differently, I was at Oxford under the great Jewish philosopher Isaiah Berlin. And he's famous for saying freedom, and this is very biblical, is both negative, freedom from, no one under any power that constrains them, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or a dictator, or a bully, is free. You've got to have freedom from. You begin with negative freedom. Let my people go freedom is also positive, freedom for. And positive freedom assumes truth. You've got to know who you are to know what you're supposed to be. And so Americans today love negative freedom. Don't tread on me and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But there's not much of your view of positive freedom. That's very dangerous. That is the basis
0: that brings up some an organization called the Freedom from Religion, and they're making quite a bit of headway attacking schools and communities for saying prayer in public. Um, what's your take on an organization like that 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 has at their title a negative freedom, freedom from?
1: Well, America has had the highest, best view of religious freedom, or freedom of conscience and religion for 300 years compared say with most of europe but you can see today this huge sea change in the last 20 years alone so one of the parts of the sea change is what i call the removers people want to remove religion from public life altogether what richard newhouse called the naked public square Another part of that is what I call the rebranders, those who shift religious freedom from being the first liberty to being a matter of bigotry and discrimination. In other words, you've got a whole number of movements today undermining the First Amendment, starting with religious freedom, and that is incredibly dangerous, and it's part of the radical left and their inroads into the American experiment.
0: The other part of the title of the book, The Sinai Revolution. What is the Sinai Revolution? It is, I guess, the Exodus
1: Revolution, right? Well, many Americans don't realize that the distinctives of the American Revolution largely come from the Bible and the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Now, the 17th century is often called by historians the biblical century. And it was fascinating, even atheists like Thomas Hobbes were fascinated with what they call the Hebrew Republic. Because with the Reformation and going back to Scripture, Mm -hmm. people tried to say, how was politics in the Bible? So it wasn't just, say, justification by faith and personal salvation, but what's the political view of politics? It was not hierarchical as the Roman Empire and the Catholic Church had been. And it was Lord Acton, again a Catholic layman, who made the famous remark, all power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was talking about his own church when he wrote that. But the Reformation went back to Exodus. So where does consent of the government come from? Exodus. Three times when God puts out the covenant, it says, The people respond, all that the Lord says we will do. That is the origin of the consent of the government, incredibly important part of freedom. Or take the great notion of constitution. That comes from covenant. And again and again, the Hebrew Republic is the roots for freedom. Now, obviously, let my people go. The ringing declaration of Moses to Pharaoh is the master story of freedom in history. But there's far more to it than that, and we need to rediscover those roots in a detailed way. But you hear the ringing today
0: of that let my people go, but you hear it in the negative, though, because now they're attacking the very foundations of those words. How much is it being challenged today that America is a, is a country based on Judeo-Christian values?
1: Oh, it's totally challenged today, which is why the West, as a whole, not just America, is increasingly becoming a cut-flower civilization. We owe a lot to the Greeks, and considerable amount to the Romans. But the principal debt of the West is to the Jews and to the Bible. You know, Disraeli called the Christian faith Judaism for the multitudes. Mm. So where did a high view of human dignity come from? Genesis one we we're made in the image and likeness of God. Where is the deepest view of truth, of words, of freedom, of justice, of peace, of covenant? All these things are there in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And they are the richest, deepest source of these great values the world has ever seen so literally when you kill the golden goose you kill the golden eggs we're a cut flower civilization and let's remember what the alternatives are a pre-christian paganism with its brutality based on power and so people have got to know what they're choosing just as moses says i put before you life and death choose life and uh, you go on down through the great choices in the bible and down through history lincoln Half slave or half free. Choose. America today has to choose. But we need leaders. I, I often say we need a Lincoln-like leader. I'm just a Pipsqueak, a foreign <laughs> admirer of this country. But you need American leaders at the highest level setting out the choice like Lincoln did, like Moses did, so that Americans can choose.
0: Um, I'm gonna take a break real Quick break here on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Oz Guinness talking about his book, The Magna Carta of Humanity. We'll be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book? Show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lighthouse today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Lighthouse. BetterHelp.com slash Lighthouse. And we're back with Oz Guinness talking about... um. His book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. We're talking about America that is divided. And one of the things that's happening today that is really surprising is this bent towards the pro-Palestinian riots or pro-Palestinian protests. We see them on on college campuses. We're seeing them in communities. We just today hear a story about a a California community board uh, passing a resolution, blaming Israel for the war in in the Middle East right now. Um, What is your take on what's happening today in this part of the divided America?
1: Well, as I said in the first segment... It was a surprise to many when we had woke business, even more when you had a woke military. And to me, it's so sad, following Gaza, that we now have this very much woke protest. So you have the elite university students, the Ivy League students and others, standing against Israel and on behalf of the progressive left. What they don't realize is That if you look at the roots of the problem in the middle east much of it was exacerbated when hitler in 1941 in november invited the grand mufti of jerusalem to berlin and together they swore to wipe out the jews and that radical link between nazism and islamism has been powerful ever since and it was picked up by the muslim brotherhood and of course hamas is the paramilitary wing of the Muslim Brotherhood. And so you can see that the inroads of the radical left in woke business, in woke finance, in woke military, are now profoundly there in these protests. So the defense of the Jews is the defense of the Jews, and I stand with them one of the things that
0: um one of the things uh that i saw not too long ago is the waning biblical world view not just of gen zers or gen xers but of pastors christian pastors a uh, a recent study i think at the um arizona uh, university showed that only 37% of pastors had a biblical world view which means they're sixty seven percent had more of a synchronistic kind of understanding, sort of a an amalgamation of a lot of different religions. you know, and it to me, this is kind of the effects of the Enlightenment. you know God is the measure of all things, not man. I mean, man is the measure of all things, not God.
1: my oh God. No, absolutely, Lauren, but you can say that ever since Schleiermacher in the 18th century, the mainline Protestant liberalism has capitulated to the spirit of the age. So they've been lost for a while. Say the Episcopal Church is the leader. They're committing institutional cultural suicide. What's tragic is that so many more conservative, sometimes evangelical churches, with a rather narrowly pietistic understanding of the Bible, are beginning to follow suit. They have a weak pulpit. That's tragic. For example, you take the famous megachurch pastor who said we should unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. That's madness. Yeah, Because it's the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, where I said you have the high view of human dignity, truth, words, freedom, justice, covenant, peace. You go on down the line. Unhitch the Old Testament. You have Nothing. And so there's a madness around. Now, I would look at the Bible itself. Take the two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel, the northern kingdom, compromised, 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 and literally acculturated into oblivion. They became the lost 10 tribes. They're completely gone. That will happen to the church that compromises. Judah. Had the prophecy of Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even if there was sin and exile, there could be renewal and restoration. And they survived. And faithfulness is the key to the staying power of the Jews, and key to the faithfulness is the key to the staying power of Christians in this time when many are compromising. How do we move forward? How do we recreate this
0: understanding of a biblical worldview? Because let me back up. Let me back up because a lot of people feel that all the religions are basically equal, that they have true value, that they're equally true. There's a problem right there. What's, What's your take? How do you respond to that?
1: Well, I think that's absolute rubbish. You take the three great families of faiths, the Eastern. Hinduism, Buddhism, the New Age movements, you know, the secularist family, atheists, agnostics, and so on, and then the biblical family, supremely Jews and Christians. They all have drastically, decisively different views of ultimate reality. In the East, it's the impersonal ground of being. A secularist is chance. Mm. For Jews and Christians, it's a single force, a personal, transcendent God. All the answers come out differently, depending on which family you work from. They are not all the same. And yet people would like to believe this. And
0: they're getting this really from colleges. I mean, college professors preach this because how else can you get the belief that all religions are equally valid. I mean, that's very much sort of an armchair theologian kind of response. And it really is not even based on fact.
1: Well, people have a lot of mushy hopes, but they just got to look at reality, whether the philosophies themselves or the way it works out on the ground. For example, I spent some time under a guru with their beliefs in the impersonal ground of being. Where do you have a high view of man? Why do you have the caste system? And why do you have Dalits, the untouchables? That would be anathema. In other words, you take the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Mm -hmm. Jefferson. It is self-evident that people are No, it's not. It wouldn't have been self-evident for Plato or for Aristotle. For Plato, some people are born gold, some born silver, and some born bronze. For Aristotle, some are born to rule and some are born to be ruled. For the caste system in India, some people are born to be Brahmins and some people are born to be Dalits. No. In the biblical view, every single one of us, the least educated, the most impoverished, the most handicapped physically, made in the image and likeness of God and therefore precious and inalienable. In other words, where you stand and where you start makes a tremendous difference.
0: Absolutely. I mean, let's just take the idea of equality. Um, It depends on what your ultimate authority is, because if your ultimate authority is liberal thinking, then your idea of equality is equal outcomes, not equal opportunity,
1: Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And when you start with equality like that, which the French Revolution did, of course, it appeals to envy the tall poppy syndrome, you have to have an umpire to say who's equal and who's not, which means the state. And so you have an increasing power in the state. In other words, it ends disastrously. Now, there's certainly a tension between liberty and equality. The two things are in tension. And you can see in the Bible, say God makes people free, but you have, among other things, the year of jubilee. So every 49 years, 50 years, things are redistributed because they got out of whack and so on. So liberty will always be something of a threat to equality, but equality is disastrous to liberty.
0: How can we, as uh, America, move forward now? I mean, how do we create? I don't know if we can create a Lincoln. I don't know if a Lincoln is out there uh, that can shepherd America so that it's not so divided. But.
1: What can people do? Well, Lauren, remember that those of us who are people of faith, and I'm a follower of Jesus, we are natural conservatives because the biblical call to remember, remember, remember all the great things that God has done for us in the past. But we're not only conservatives. We are the true progressives in the best sense of the word. You, you take something like the first Passover, There's been thousands of them since the first one. But when Moses instituted it, they were still in captivity. They painted the doors with their blood and so on. If the Lord did not come through that night, they would have been sitting ducks for the Egyptians the next day. The Passover was in anticipation of a freedom they didn't have. And so much of the biblical faith looks forward, Hebrews 11, We are not only natural conservatives, we should be. We are natural progressives. We're looking forward finally to the day of the Messiah's arrival. But here's the point. The West may be in decline. America's in trouble. Mm -hmm. But we're not just trying to conserve some past. The golden age is ahead. So we want a human-friendly future, a, a, a human future of freedom and justice for all. Where's the roots of it? In the Bible. We should be the champions, the vanguard of fighting for a better view tomorrow. So we should be people of hope. As I said earlier, it's the Bible that gives you the grounds, not only for decline and fall. Everyone has that. It gives you the grounds for renewal after exile. And so we should be the champions of looking with hope towards tomorrow with the possibility of renewal, awakening, revival, and striving for greater freedom and better justice in the world for our children and their children's children tomorrow.
0: You know, one caveat of this discussion, and I wanna bring out, because you bring this out in the book about how the left liberalism is really trying to form a one voice rule. In our communities, in schools, um, in government, even uh, like you talk about the in, in the military, um, how do you recognize it and how do you thwart it?
1: Uh, Lawrence, a tiny point, but I make a difference between liberals and I don't attack and the left that I do. The left, okay. The left, not necessary liberals, okay. The left. Liberal should mean freedom and generosity. But anyway, no, it's the left I'm against. But if you think the great specter of our modern world is autocracy and authoritarianism, China, Russia, North Korea, but you also see the the seeds of it in Davos. You've got a global problem, a pandemic or whatever it is, then you have a global solution and a global organization, and you end up with one world government. And there are movements towards it here, the the, the shift towards an oligarchy rather than a a democracy and towards a one-party rule. And that's the danger of what we're beginning to see. Now, you've had uh, party bosses and so on in New York and Chicago and so on, but you've never had a one-party rule in America. And that's the danger of what some of the Democrats are trying to do on the left-wing side. So, We need to stand for freedom, genuine diversity, against authoritarianism and one-party rule.
0: Did America ever, the Founding Fathers, ever envision an America
1: without a biblical worldview? No, I think they would have considered that impossible. Where else, for example, do you have the grounds for freedom itself? You go back to the ancient world and the great idea was fate. Or necessity takes a Oedipus Rex. Everything he tries to do to beat the oracle only makes even more sure that the oracle comes true. He's fated, and if fate is our human condition, life would be unbearable. Now, in the modern world, we don't believe in fate, but you look at our atheist friends from Marx and Freud down to people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. They are determinists. If we understood everything that influencing us from economics to genetics, we cannot do otherwise than we do. We're determined. It's the Bible creation that gives us the ground for genuine freedom and therefore for genuine responsibility and the possibility of change and growth and all sorts of things we take for granted. So without these biblical roots, I said it earlier, we're a cut flower civilization and put flowers in a vase. They don't last very long. And if America continues down this path, the Republic is doomed. Make no mistake. I speak as a great admirer of this country. Going down the present path of the radical left, the Republic is doomed. Only if there's a restoration of biblical roots across the board, will there be renewal and a new day for the American Republic. I know people who would ask
0: you, because we've only talked about Christianity and Judaism, they would say, why can't Islam be that kind of faith for America?
1: Well, technically, Islam is part of the Abrahamic family of faiths. That's true. But I would say gently, it is the most distant from the Bible. And in many ways, it is the most distorted of the Bible. So the remarkable thing about the Bible, it is the only sacred text in history in the world that is shared by two great faiths, Judaism, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the Christian faith, and the Christian Scriptures in the New Testament. And that's why they are so significant. They should be close. The tragedy, the disaster of Christian history is the Catholic and the Russian Orthodox treatment of God's people, the Jews. Thank God that although Luther was an exception, the Reformation reversed that. And evangelicals in particular, you look at William Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury, the great evangelicals fought for the restoration of Israel to a homeland even before the Jews fought for it. Wow. So
0: it's not that Islam is a, well, let me back up because Remember after 9-11, you know, the president, President Bush, talked about how um, the radicals, the terrorists, um, maligned a peaceful religion. Do you agree with
1: that or not? George Bush misunderstood the meaning of the word Islam. It means submission. And while every Christian should say with sorrow— that we look at the Inquisition and we look at other things, the church has been the instrument of injustice and oppression when it has departed from our Lord. But there's no question that so has Islam. But the important point today is that radical Islamism, that's what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. I call it the black wave, radical Islamism was rooted in that blend between Nazism and Islamism that goes back to Hitler and the Grand Mufti. And that is what is the great danger today. There are so-called Muslim moderates, although other people reject the term moderate in terms of Islam. But I'm talking about Islamism. That's the deadly danger today. And we should recognize it's not only against Israel as the little Satan. It's against America and the West as the great Satan. Because, Lauren, here's the point. If you look at what I call the red wave, Marxism, Mm -hmm. the rainbow wave, the sexual revolution, and the black wave, Islamism, they are all not only against the Jewish and Christian faiths, they are against the West itself. And that's why the student protests and other things today are so profoundly important. America is at stake. The West is at stake. And we need leaders and citizens who wake up before it's too late and call the West and call America back to their roots.
0: It's, it's, it's questionable and it's um, – I wondered why so many people from those countries come to the United States uh, to gain freedom and yet um, have this background, this foundation that Israel is the enemy and Jews are the enemy.
1: You're right, but many of them, if you talk to them, I was talking to an Uber driver in Colorado recently and so on. It's rather like Europe. In Europe, the East is the West and the West is the non-West. What do I mean? Eastern Europe lived under the communists and they stand for freedom. Much of Western Europe has grown complacent and is vulnerable to the radical left. So in America, there are those who've arrived here in terms of freedom and so on, and an opportunity for their children. But they're now saying, what on earth has happened to America? The America I came to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is unrecognizable. I first came here in 1968 as a tourist. I'm not American now. I'm a great admirer of this country. But America today is unrecognizable by the standards of America 50 years ago. The inroads of the radical left have gone far, far further, and they're soon reaching the point of no return. Well, give us hope
0: then, before we end, give us hope. How can we move forward with hope in America?
1: Well, as I said earlier, followers of Jesus, and Jews too, believe in the possibility of exile, following complacency and disobedience, but return and restoration in christian terms revival and awakening so it can be individual i've written a book called signals of transcendence of how many people are atheists suddenly discover their atheism punctured and they come back to a deep faith but we need that as a as a nation as a whole revival and awakening it can happen now that of course puts a heavy responsibility on leaders And again and again, I say in Washington, why is there no equivalent of Lincoln? We're as divided as in the 1850s, but today there's no Lincoln. He addressed the evil of his day, believing in what he called the better angel of the American nature, and he called for a new birth of freedom. Now, of course, it didn't happen after his assassination, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and so on, until the civil rights movement. But what we need today is a Lincoln who will call for a new, new birth of freedom. So I'm a person of hope, but it will take leadership and a clear understanding of what's wrong and what should be right. I want to thank you so much,
0: is The book is called the Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith, and the Future of Freedom. There are many other books you've written, but this is one we're kind of talking about tonight, But I, um, or today. Thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I really, I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app, or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day.
1: Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.